Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Welcome Whatever is relevant for the part the of the world horizon. you are in, indeed welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is R.S. Mallette, Robert Mallette, the author of Kaya and the Morian Treasure. And this is, uh, this is space opera. It's la, 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 space. <laughs> <laughs> You I have in my head, because uh, this thing has been with me for so long, that in my imagination, I have lunch with whoever's composing the music for the movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I want to write down three names and give them to them. You know, because it's like, I always think of um, uh, the Seven Samurai, not the Seven Samurai, uh, uh, the Magnificent Seven. Somehow that theme song defined the West. You hear that and you're like, I'm in the Wild West. But I don't think space has quite gotten that yet. You know, the, and the, you know, the uh, uh, Magnificent Seven is bum 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 bum. Anyway. Well, if you're of a certain <laughs> age, it says cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the Marlboro Man, right? He's in exactly the West. Exactly so. Well, that's that's true. That's How true. many and decades was the Marlboro Man on Sunset Boulevard, Susan? Do you remember? It was longer than I lived here, and I moved here in 1966. So. I think he was up since the 50s. Yeah. Th- and they took him down like 10 years ago or something. Well, he was I grew there a long in, time. I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, so you know, they would have ripped uh-huh. the Marlboro Man down. Wow. Winston Salem. Well, I went to R.J. Reynolds High School. Wow! You know they. Which it's a one major of the first high schools to ban smoking. Um, wow, that's that's wow. I, <laughs> I didn't know that because we could, you know, you could you could smoke outside, mm-hmm. uh, and they wouldn't give anybody a hard time about it. But uh, anyway, yep, <laughs> a major I, industry. You know, here I guess we can make movies in class, or we can build rockets. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I think my mom used to date one of the heirs of the Reynolds fortune. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that's entirely possible. Uh, I think one of them, uh, I think there was a Lassiter or something. And and you could, there have been books about the Reynolds family. And I went to mm-hmm. school with uh, Linda Lee Reynolds, who was perfectly nice. Uh, but, uh, and I saw the ghost of... Mrs. Reynolds, as in R.J. Reynolds' wife. But I don't believe in ghosts, but I definitely saw her, I think. Wow. Well, you don't have to believe in something. I believe in dinner plates because I've seen them. I use them every day. (laughs) (laughs) No, and uh, 
1923, when R.J. Reynolds had died, uh, Mrs. Reynolds built Reynolds Auditorium uh, for the high school uh, and dedicated it to him. And there are stories that they haunt the theater, and there's, there are paintings in the back of the theater. So if you're standing on stage and looking out over the audience, over the audience's head, are, there's a painting of Mr. Reynolds and a painting of Mrs. Reynolds. And they always say if the lights over the paintings ever go out, their ghosts come out into the theater. Well, the lights never, ever, ever went out. But we were doing a tech for a, a, a talent show one time, and this huge thunderstorm was building up. Scared the bejesus out of everybody. And suddenly the power went out. So we couldn't do our tech anymore. So, you know, we'd meet on stage, and right. somebody says, okay, let's lock up and leave. And I ran up to the, to the front, checked the front doors, came back down, and I thought, wait a minute. The light over Mrs. Reynolds' painting will be out. So I ran up to the painting, and I was, you know, I'm 18, and I bop up to the painting. I'm like, yo, Mrs. Reynolds, and I look at her in the face, and her dress, her white dress was cut off by the frame of the painting. But as I looked at her face, her dress hit the ground. <gasps> Ooh. And, and I was just like, okay, I'm not going to look down, because I don't want to see that the dress is not there and be disappointed or see that it is there and just drop dead from fear. <laughs> I think acknowledging the, the ghost is the best way to go. You you have good insights. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, I backed away and got out of the field. We have gone off on a few tangents, huh? <laughs> a few, but that's what makes life interesting. Yeah, my you... publisher's going to kill me. He's like, talk about the book! <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk. Is this your first book? This is the first book that I ever wrote, but it's my third book being published. This um, does not feel like a first book, if if I may say so. Thank you, thank you. It it feels uh, I mean, first first novelitis is usually very apparent, and uh, <laughs> uh, you are not exhibiting any of the signs of, uh, you know. Oh, hello! Uh, I think we'll let the siren go by. Yeah, that's that's I'm in it's D.C., so that's probably, you know, the president going somewhere or something. <laughs> I did see, like, a whole caravan of black SUVs driving by this morning. So. Well, that could I be. Don't... That could be. That's always fun. All right. Um, why don't you pick it up from This Doesn't Seem... Oh, yes. This doesn't seem like... This does not seem like a, a first novel to me. Uh, usually, uh, first novel-itis is very apparent. And uh, I, listening to the audiobook of this... I have not seen the signs of it. The uh, the stumbling over the exposition, the the uh, well, ex there had to be exposition, exposition but yeah. they were. Well, but yeah. it seemed to evolve naturally, you know. Uh -huh. Thank you. It's like n no big blocks of exposition, no big uh, 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 clumsy emotional reveals, you know, things <laughs> like that. Uh, I think I owe a lot of that to my dad. Uh, who has been a struggling novelist all of his life. Uh, never, I mean, he was published in college, one of his uh, articles, I think, the, uh, the Charge of the Panty Brigade. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. When, that got picked up nationally. Uh, that's, that is hilarious. How do you follow up <laughs> the title a, like that? He's a funny guy. Uh, and... And uh, he's been writing novels all of his life. So um, this started out as a screenplay. Mm. And 
and it got some headway. It got some, you know, got me a manager. It got me a few people reading it. Uh, it went as far as a weekend read at Imagine, um, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, so so I knew this was something to put energy behind. But everybody said it was too big to do as a, you know, as a movie without an established audience. Have you thought about doing it as a book? I can see why well, they. I can see why they said that. I mean, there is a lot yeah. to this. Uh, this today, this would be a. Um, I don't know. Could be a miniseries. Two hundred and thirty, two hundred and forty million to make yeah. this film, and especially yeah, and, when and it's a girl. It. Especially when I it's a woman-led it story. You know, it could be Jupiter Asc- ascending, which is was you know a perfectly okay picture, but it didn't sell because it didn't have. They didn't know how it to wasn't make. Star Wars, so they didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, and it missed on some things, I think. I uh, yeah. I but liked it. I liked it, but, you know, it was like, uh, something that was askew. Something was missing. Well, I think uh, I think the frame of reference there is that it was a love letter to Flash Gordon, you know, and, mm. no, and nobody figured that out. You know what's funny? You speak of that. I, I uh, in my my assistant days, temping in Hollywood, I worked for uh, Brian Levant, who was a huge Flash Gordon fan, and he had created um, Captain Zoom. Oh my god! Uh, which <laughs> which was part of the Universal Action Pack that had started that uh, the idea that, that what Universal was doing was giving filmmakers. Um, TV deals to put together, uh, you know, like like miniseries or uh, this was pre um, streaming, pre you know uh, uh, limited series, all that kind of stuff, or between uh, limited series. And Captain Zoom was basically Galaxy Quest, but from uh, but for uh, Flash Gordon. Okay. Um, it's the exact same thing. This is long before Galaxy Quest. When I was uh, working for Brian, Galaxy Quest was about to come out, and he was pissed. <laughs> he was. Oh, I uh, understand. I he was trying to file suit. He was trying to do all this stuff, and I and I looked. I love Galaxy Quest. I looked at you know. I kind of was like, I couldn't say anything, but it's like he just he had the right concept, but the wrong uh, show to pull from. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I mean, Flash Gordon was great, um, but but uh, the audience is in Star Trek. Yeah, it's and that I think is why um, I think that's why uh, Jupiter Ascending just didn't quite catch because nobody had that frame of reference. You know, and with with uh, Galaxy Quest, of course, they did because mm-hmm. it was an obvious send up of Star Trek, and Will- oh, yeah, and, and William and Shatner's <laughs> gigantic ego and the whole thing. Exactly. So, and it was brilliant. It really, the, I, oh, they, oh, it they was really nailed it. Um, well, the personalities so. and the next generation cast all loved the hell out of it. I'm not sure. Nobody has actually said what the uh, original series guys. Maybe they just kind of kept quiet. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. this uh, this is really um, I mean in chapter one you just get off to this one hell of a leaping start. 
<laughs> it's also a long chapter. I'm just, yeah, well, you know, it is. Having gone through the audio book, you know, it's like, oh, God, that chapter's 40 minutes long. You don't think about that when it's on when you're just typing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then some of my chapters are, you know, 12 minutes long. And then, mm-hmm. oh, OK, well, uh, I like syncopation. That's that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking of, of myself, you know, reading before I fall asleep. And everybody flips ahead, you know, and they go, oh, there's a little break. So uh, mm-hmm. I'll just, you know, I'll just read to there and then I'll put the book down and go to sleep. <laughs> and yeah. as a writer, I'm thinking, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. I got a punch coming. I'm keeping you awake. I'm, you know. <laughs> oh, raising my hand on that one. Oh, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, um, you are not the first author that we have had on here. Um uh, who had written their book as a screenplay first. Mm. Brian Fitzpatrick, uh, who has now written three books in the MechCraft series, uh, started out with uh, screenplays. And he had the yeah. same exact problem you did. We loved this. It would be too expensive to shoot uh, for us to gamble that much money on a property without a following. And it needs exactly. to be a book first. And... You know, I did theater, and my my degrees in theater, and mm-hmm. I did uh, I did theater in L.A. for the longest time. And every now and then, you know, you'd be with a company or something, and uh, and some screenwriter would show up and go, "Well, I couldn't sell this script as a pl- as a screenplay, so I'm doing it as a play, so I can sell it as a movie." Right. And they suck. Oh, they suck every time. And it's like, uh, you know, and and all the all the theater people are sitting around going, "You got to learn." You know, you have to learn theater. You can't just take a movie and and suddenly make it into a play. Yeah, uh, that because that never works because they they have no idea exactly how many tools they have to leave in the box in order exactly. to make theater work. That's a yeah. very good way of putting it, actually. And it's the same. So when I when I decided I was going to write, I put off. I was like, no, 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 I'm not going to be that guy. Until I finally had to be that guy. So. Uh, so I wrote the first draft and I sent that to my dad because I knew that he was steeped in novel writing. That's his love. That's his passion. And together, uh, together we did a rewrite. You know, he cut every adverb. Uh, he made sure that all my he says <laughs> and she says were syncopated. So it wasn't like, there's the door, he said knowingly. <laughs> and right. you know, and all sounding exactly the same. Um, and yeah, that, that and I learned that's a uh, a common right. thing for for new writers to do. The he said, she said, feeling that you have to identify who's speaking with every line, right? That and and assuming that the reader is too stupid to get it by context. Mm. Yeah, and in the audio book, I cut I cut even more of those. Uh, I. Uh, I would I would just do a line through so that uh, Merritt Hicks, who does the narration, um, she's actually my neighbor. Um, she did a marvelous does, job. Just marvelous. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's like, oh, hey, could you play every character in this book during COVID so you're recording it at your home without me there to give you any guidance at all? Uh, she really, <laughs> <laughs> wow. really nailed it. She really but did. I, I would do line throughs because like when you're writing screenplays, uh, they're called parentheticals. There's the, you know, there's the Mm -hmm. actor, the character's name. And then underneath that, there might be, you know, slowly. 
and then and then the dialogue. Well, you're a bad writer if you have to put in all of those parentheticals to tell the actor what to do. You need to tell the actor what to do by the context of the scene. They're a professional. They'll figure it out. When you're writing for a general public reader, sometimes you have to put it in and sometimes you don't. And knowing where uh, an amateur reader or just, you know, not an amateur reader, that's not a fair statement. Well, it is because amateur means of love, you know, mm -hmm. doing it for love. So uh, so I'll, I'll stick with amateur reader. Um, it's hard to know what where they are. So you come constantly trying to gauge you know, are they with me? Are they not? Do I need to add a little bit? But when, uh, when I have, when I knew Merritt was reading it, I would just put a line through all of the the anything that described how the character was saying something, because that's how she was going to say it. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, you know, for me it doesn't work as an audio book to have her say it, you know, with desperation, and then have the next word be, she said desperately. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, uh -huh. um, it was ridiculous. So, uh, I mean, uh, God, I hope I don't have she said desperately anywhere in the book. <laughs> but, uh, um, but if I did, I cut it for the audio book for sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's always a different path. Every writer takes a different path to get to the finish line. How long did it take you to get your initial screenplay done, and how long did it take you to convert it into something that that you could stick in your coat pocket? Uh, the screenplay was fairly quick, coming from a theater background. I do remember, uh, and I think I put this in the in the acknowledgments once you guys actually get the book. Not your fault, Michael. Uh, the uh, uh, I had been on Xena Warrior Princess for a couple of years. And uh, was not on that show anymore, so I was unemployed. And my friend, who's a line producer on a bunch of things, he was between jobs. I think he'd just come off a party of five, maybe. So he was unemployed and might be up for a job on a Pamela Anderson project. And Barbed Wire, or Barbed Wire. Right, I remember that. I remember that. So we're two guys in Hollywood with nothing to do in the middle of the day. So we went to see Barbed Wire, uh, and we got there really early on a, like a Wednesday matinee or something, and we're sitting in the theater for the longest time, and he gets up to get something to eat or get something. And I'm, I'm breaking the book. When, you know, when you're in a story, and, and it's like boom, 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 boom. All you can think about is the story. And I knew if I'm doing space opera, they have to have a way of traveling faster than light. Every space opera has to have its own version of that. Right. What's mine going to do? Yeah. And so while he was gone and while I was waiting for barbed wire to start, uh, I came up with this whole idea of a tick, which is what they do in the book. Um, and the idea kind of started with, um, with the, uh, you know, when, when you're going fast, when the faster you go, the greater your mass, right? That's mm -hmm. science. As you approach the speed of light, your mass approach, approaches infinity. That's why we can't go the speed of light. But I'm thinking, does your density change? If your density doesn't change, and I've talked to enough physicists now who will give me enough of an answer, well, it depends on your point of view and where you're observing and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. Your density doesn't change. Sci-fi, boom. <laughs> um, 
if your density doesn't change, then your volume must approach infinite as well. Yeah. So in this tick, you're popped into a dimension where you have infinite mass and infinite volume, meaning you take up every speck of space in the universe. So all you have to do to come out of it is figure out where you want to come out and reappear in that in that quadrant in that you know in those uh, in that area whatever you know again, whatever math equation finds the space again science fiction easier science, done of course it's science you know it's easier like, done than think, said Fred <laughs> I always think of science fiction as uh, you know it's a magician's trick mm-hmm. you start out with something real and then if you can hide that little cheat if you can hide your sleight of hand then you've done a really good job. Of course, everyone knows you're doing a trick. So everyone knows there's right. something there. You're yeah. not going to be able to hide it 100%. Virtually God, every no. science fiction story I've ever read has had a conceit like that in it. Mm. Yeah, you absolutely have to. And you know, my, my question also was that if you're... Under what circumstances would you have infinite mass? And under what circumstances would you have infinite volume? Infinite mass is the point mass at the beginning of time, and infinite volume is the ever-expanding, the universe having expanded to its fullest thing, which would be the end of time. So while you're in this dimension, you exist in all facets of time, Uh which would uh fry your brain. So during a... and, And the tick comes from... A computer can't exist in all facets of time. It has to have a, code, a line of code that says, go into this weird dimension, and then a line of code that says, come out at these coordinates. Mm-hmm. And it has to have linear time to go from one of those to the other. And that's a tick of the clock. Right. So they call it a tick. Got it. Uh, and if you're awake during a tick, then you can lose your mind and you become tickled. Uh-huh. And if you can survive and not kill yourself or lose your mind entirely, then you are able to see possible futures. Mm-hmm. And the more possible futures there are, the more you might be able to predict what will happen. And people who can do that are called ticklers. Uh-huh. So anybody who's anybody who hasn't... Uh, knocked themselves unconscious prior to the tick, prior to the Thank you. the jump. Exactly. Yeah, they, they're supposed to um, anesthetize before the uh, before the tick. Only, so that only don't. Kaya doesn't. Yes, Kaya is able to do this wide awake and not get tickled. That, and, ma- that makes her exceptionally rare and gives her extraordinary power in her situations. And the point exactly. of view character is very young and she has all the possibilities of her life ahead of her. Yeah, yeah. In that, in that, and this is, you know, this is the first chapter. We're not giving anything away. Um, she has, yeah, all of her possibilities. And, and when you're young, you can kind of... You know, you if if someone experienced there and you get tickled once, you can be pulled out of it. It's hard, but somebody with experience like Kaya can do it. Which means, of course, that's what happens in chapter one. Of course, uh, because the you picture as a writer, you picture the very worst thing that can happen to your characters, and then you do that. Exactly. 
exactly. Intensify the obstacle. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, Kaya, uh, uh, Nadir, the sidekick, uh, for Xena fans, that's my Gabrielle character. Right. <laughs> um, right. She gets she gets tickled in the in the in the first chapter, um, and uh, and so she experiences all of this, and Kaya pulls her out of it just barely because Kaya could stay awake. If if she had gotten tickled and come out of it, you know, and they they came out of the other side of the space, and everybody on the ship was sound asleep, like another character, Janaya, goes through, then she would probably have been tickled. Uh, and and prob and pro probably killed herself. Uh, if you get if you can imagine every painful thing that's ever happened to you in your life, multiply it by a billion because that's how many lives you're going to remember going through this thing. How many possible lives? Uh, then that's what sticks with. That's the pain you feel if you're awake for this thing. But do you not feel that much joy? Or hunger, or having to go to the bathroom, or <laughs> every other yeah. feeling that is possible. Every other feeling that is possible. Yes, you do, and you do feel that much joy. Uh, and of course, if you come out of it, if if you if you fixate on the joy, then you know that's like doing crack cocaine. You want more of that joy, so you're going to become addicted to being tickled. Mm. And, and you're kind of kind of lose your mind that way. There, it's a very thin line to stay anywhere close to sanity coming out of this. Um, and for some reason, Kaya does fine, hmm. which is not explained in the book. You get to guess. I, I imagine that that would be uh, could be uh, something that you bring out in a sequel. Or the rest uh, of the book. Yeah. Funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so very it, cool. It, we, I was with a working with a writers group on uh, uh, on book two, and they had not read book one, which was really impossible. But it did help. And at one point, um, right where I about it, kind of expected a really smart reader to take a good guess at why Kaya could do this. She guessed right. Oops. And I was like, okay, are you in it? Do I need to? Do I need to make it more difficult? Do I need to keep it the way it is? Uh, I kind of kept it the way it is, but um, it's okay to guess right. It's just bad if the author doesn't know that some of the audience has guessed right at that point. Yeah, I can, I can see that. This is what beta readers are for. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I always think of uh, writers' groups like bands. You know, you put them together, they, they're like, oh, we had a great band going, and then it falls apart, and then you kind of... Beta readers, you give them a book, you put them in a small bowl of water on the shelf, and get them <laughs> separated. <Not> beta readers. <laughs> yeah. I, I also have ego readers. You mm. know, when you finish that first draft, and you're exhausted, uh -huh. and you know you have to climb the, the edit mountain. I mean, the work begins when you finish the first draft. But you really don't want to hear it. You just want somebody to go, oh, it's so good. You're such, you're such a clever writer. I call them ego readers. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just need that. You just need a stroke. You know? I think every artist because you've does. Just, because first draft is hell. First draft first is draft. hell. Because the middle, you know, 
you it's it's fairly easy you, you you know where you begin you've got your characters in the beginning you know where you want to end up and then you get up to about the middle of act two and you go where the hell am i <laughs> i'm that way right now with book three book two is written and mm. and getting prepped to quickly follow book one uh-huh book three is the middle you know, and the middle is the hardest. And, it, and there's a never-ending middle. Uh, and the middle is the hardest part. I know what I want to do, but it has. Um, when I'm ready, when I feel like I'm really ready to write, it pops in my head. It goes, pow, I got it. And right now it's going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have been there so often. In fact, I've been there so often that I don't think I've ever actually finished anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that, that's when, when I was Being working honest, on, uh, you know, when I was working on Xena, uh, RJ Stewart was talking about, it might've been his son or someone in his family who was, uh, I think in college taking writing, he was talking about someone who was for the first time, not just writing for pleasure, but mm-hmm. having to meet a deadline, uh-huh. you know, and having to come up with that story. And he's like, Yeah. Uh, that that never changes, and that's professional writing. That's disappointing. I have to say. <laughs> well, <laughs> misery loves company. News. Come on, it'll be better. It'll get it gets better. It really yeah. does get better. Yeah. Or, or yeah. we'd never well, have still, any books in the it's world. It's still fun. It's just that the challenge. You don't. You can't like. You know. You can't sit in the movie theater waiting for for barbed wire to come on and just casually think about some fun stuff. You have to sit at your computer and go, or walk around your room, you know, cussing at your computer and trying to figure out what you want to do. Um, when you when you work out the beats for your story, do you like work out major milestones, or do you have uh, do you have a story and then you go, okay, where do my beats fit in? You know what, what I do. do you, you guys, you guys may be able to tell this from from the audio book. I do uh, TV outlines because um, a TV, uh, you know, an outline for a TV show on network has a teaser, act one, act two, act three, act four. And the acts are, it's not like, like feature films where it's like, oh, well, it's a three-act structure and blah, blah, blah. And you can kind of pick where the act break is. In, in TV, every 12 to 15 pages, a commercial is coming up and the audience gets a chance to change the channel or leave or go away and never come back. So you have to give every 15 to 12 pages of a script, you have to give them a reason to come back from that commercial. This was something I learned on Xena and and they were tenacious, they being uh, mostly Liz Friedman. and RJ, RJ was also very good at it. RJ was a huge fan of the Wild Wild West, as was I. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, the Wild Wild West always had those things. I mean, it was, <laughs> it's, it's TV writing class to watch the old Wild Wild West because each act break would freeze frame and then go up into the corner as a painting. Oh, yes, yeah, I was, remember that. Yeah, it was practically a, a character of its own, you know? It yes. Was, you look yes. forward to those. And we didn't do that with Xena, but we did have to have that, that, you know, somebody had to be about to die every 12 to 15 pages. Now, on a so for a book, if I do like three or four TV outlines, 
then I'm start with an arc across that. Okay. Then I know I'm got, I've got uh, I've got good chapter break. You know, each act break is kind of a chapter, kind of. Uh, I know that I've got you know I've got some Dumas style uh, excitement going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's what I do when I'm when I'm hammering out the beats and and uh, and breaking the story. Wow. Okay. Well, that that's that's actually very helpful. I had not <laughs> taking that approach had not occurred to me, and I, I think that's actually going to help me. So thank you. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm. I'm I've got a manuscript that I started. Uh, I'm oh, embarrassed. Three years ago, yeah, four maybe? four years ago four now, years now. Okay. and I got yeah. stalled in Act Two, and and uh, my problem was I think I bit off more than I could chew. I've got a, it's an urban, uh, urban fantasy parallel world story, except the parallel world uh, is its own context, and the stories, yeah. It's, it's it's way too more complex than I should have started started off with. Yeah. So been there. <laughs> well, maybe yeah, we could I take had, that approach. When was, Sorry. When I was adapting this to get back to your to your question with the adaptation to a novel, that took a lot longer. And at one, you know, when I showed my dad the first draft, um, you know, a screenplay when they do a character's point of view. It's just a mild suggestion. You know, you can always cut away to something that the character hasn't seen and just show that scene. Mm-hmm. Can't do that in a book. And the, the book, having, having come, you know, I started this as the Xena Scrolls, and, and which were Gabrielle's telling the story of Xena um, on the website. It was the first intellectual property to go from the web to television. Cool. <laughs> uh, when they did a... Uh, uh, an episode based on the the website characters, but um, uh, or the website concept. Um, when I tried to take the screenplay, which had tons of times where you would just cut away to another piece of action, uh, and my dad was like, "Nope, you cannot do that. This is Nadir's journal. If she doesn't experience it, it ain't in the book." Right. And right. I had scenes that I had to get in. I felt like an attorney trying to get evidence into a case. <laughs> uh-huh. And I was like, how can I get this in? How can I get this in? And uh, Janaya is a character. And it's funny because I made up these other characters. Uh, the book starts with so much has been written about us, uh, about Kaya and Nadir, uh, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, okay. I'll take one of those one of those fictitious books and do a clip from it. And I had that in there from that got me I mean I was 6 months, 9 months with the thing just sitting on a shelf and me being depressed because I couldn't get past this. When I came up with that idea, boom, everything went. And then for the longest time that was in there and I thought and then after a while I realized that's not that, that's not compelling enough. But I have this character Janaya who is tickled Mm-hmm. Who so he gets to see possible futures and things, and I actually play him in the audiobook. Oh, that's um, nice. oh! I thought I recognized the voice. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I had him. Uh, he's in the parts of the story where the where Nadir is not, and it's uh, he's with Nadir's father. 
So I have him narrate that part of the story. And then going back to Nadir's journal, she's like, yeah, that's going to make sense later. <laughs> um, and she cuts, and you do a cutting back and forth between Janaya and Nadir for a little bit. And then when Nadir finally meets Janaya later in the book, he says, oh, here. And he hands her a, 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 data, uh, a data button. And she's like, what's that? So, well, you're, you're going to ask me to, to tell you the story about your dad on the spaceship. So here it is. <laughs> <laughs> because he sees, he saw in the future that she was going to ask him to do that, so he already did it. Ah, I see. Never mind the 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 uh, time loop or whatever, or the paradox. That's got to get annoying after a while. Or it could be <laughs> oh. great. I don't know. He'd, he'd be the perfect husband, wouldn't he? Always knows what you want. Except they zone out, so I mean, God knows that you don't want to ask a tickler a question because they just flip out. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because they could, you know, it's like all these different possible futures. And it, and you know, from a writer's point of view, uh, uh, foreshadowing is always trippy. Um, I was always envious of Dune because the book is so long that. The, you can do all this foreshadowing at the beginning and you kind of forget about it and then it starts to come true right whereas in in the 1984 movie it's like we here's the foreshadowing here's the result well you <laughs> like, didn't have wait, time whoa. for anything I just more. I know I just saw that come on I, I call it I call that? it scenes from Dune. That's that's the kindest thing I can, you know. I mean, I mean, the scenes were brilliant. Every you know, every you saw every nickel up on the screen. Nobody snuffed it up their nose. I mean, they yeah. they worked their hearts out. But there's no way a two hour movie could do justice to do that brick of a book. Yeah, if you hadn't yeah. read the book first, the movie the movie made absolutely zero sense. That was the, and so of course it belly flopped. Yeah. Well, you and say it belly flop, but belly, everybody it also, knows it, and everybody yeah. quotes it. So, well, yeah, but how it, big it, a flop it, is it? It did not make its it did not make its money back. I, I do not I, believe it. I, I, no. I would have to look that up, but I bet it has by now. Oh, I'm sure it has by now. Yeah, yeah you know, could be, it, because I it's used, been in go ahead. tertiary distribution for twenty years or whatever, yeah. however long it's been. Mm, yeah. Uh, I actually learned from watching because uh, they shot Dune. A lot of it was in North Carolina, which is where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And uh, so De Laurentiis was doing it, and his studios were in North Carolina. So we followed it kind of closely, and having been a fan of the book. But uh, what I learned from that is that it's not always the best thing to have the novelist adapt the screenplay. The novelist has to have some screenwriting chops, and very few of them do. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's funny too because you look at like uh, uh, Hunger Games. Um, Suzanne has fantastic screenwriting chops. I mean, she's uh, she's a theater person. She worked on uh, Nickelodeon. You know, she knows her way around interior exterior. But she didn't. They didn't let her adapt the screenplay. Hmm. Hmm. Well, and then of course there are people like William Goldman and the yeah. prin- the Princess Bride. So right. Well, he he also had the advantage of someone who loved the book enough to do it justice. I mean, you know. Well, he wrote the book. Yeah. Well, he... I'm. I mean, it's the director. Oh, I see. Rob I Reiner. see. 
Yes. yes. Yeah. You know, willing to go along with this stuff. I had the intro. The Princess Bride was weird for me because I was at North Carolina School of the Arts, and uh, my first exposure to it was overhearing someone uh, explain the book to somebody else, and he was doing a, a, a an arts project, uh, and he was doing the the but I'm not left-handed fight. Oh, oh wow, that's a classic. Yeah. So he's explaining it to someone in the lunchroom. And that's all I knew about Princess Bride. And then I saw the movie and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I remember this. But that was precious. That's cool. It was so fabulous. You know, I knew when I, especially in that scene, I knew everything was going to be all right because they got it right. Oh, they got yeah. it right. They got everything right. Even and without did... footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, they did a good, you know, and it's like you couldn't, you couldn't get the whole foot. I was just talking about this with my dad uh, because being dyslexic, like I can't read neither. I don't know why my dad can't stand Tolkien. I can't stand Tolkien because I'm dyslexic. I don't want to read 30 years of history of the friggin' Elfin Forest. You know, get to the point. <laughs> Fair enough. Then the movies are for you. Yes, the movies are for me. Thank you very much. Uh, Two words and... dwarf surfing. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I don't know those two words, but you just made me spill my scotch. (laughs) Alcohol abuse. (laughs) Hey, listen, you know, they made those little guys, you know, you know, hyper ninjas early on in the film. So at least it made sense. (laughs) But 12 of them, you know, you're reading the book and it's like, okay, here they come. Don't be sleepy. They come in three at a time, but I got to listen to 12 different names. Oh, what each 12 different personality types and what each 12 person is doing. Now they're going out the door. I got to hear about how 12 people go out. Three would have been fine. Three's a mythic number. (laughs) Joseph Campbell would be happy with three. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But they had to, they had, they had to come in a few at a time. This was obviously a repeating strategy of, of Gandalf's (laughs) and it seems to work even though it drove Snorri and Snoopy and Gloopy and (laughs) whatever the hell all their names were. Yeah. And, and, oh. uh, you know, it's, we re- of course, we read it in grade school, and I remember fighting with the teacher about second breakfast not being funny. Um, but I was being a literalist. Breakfast means literally breaking fast. If you've already broken your fast, you get, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was, I was however old you are when you read it for the first time. <laughs> um, and, and so the teacher was trying to explain that's why it's funny. So recently in my adulthood, I was like, well, maybe I didn't get it. I went back and reread it, and I was like, no, it's still not funny. <laughs> but it's not. I mean, I get it. It's just not funny. <laughs> you just need. Well, you you fasted since breakfast, so. Yeah, whatever. Well, then every meal's a <laughs> breakfast, isn't it? Yes, it's just so British. It, it well, gee, I wonder where that came from. <laughs> and actually, it's funny because uh, 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 Tolkien. Is kind of in there because in in Kaya and the Morian Treasure, he said, bringing it back to his own book Ooh, marketing. Nice, nice segue. Um, thank you. The uh, the lead character is a professor of comparative mythology on a galactic level. Ooh. Mm. Oh. Okay. And, and he and that because he knows the mythologies of all these different planets that every that people have been to, and he's done such study, he's become a diplomat. 
And uh-huh. I guess he's that would be very afraid that his plan, which is revealed in chapter one, I'm not giving anything away again. He's dying. He's got he's got a you know a space plague, which is just a catchphrase for anything you might catch going to another planet um, that will kill you. So he's going to any, but he wants to bring peace. He wants to be a martyr. So his and he knows all about martyrs from all these different cultures. So he's going to be captured and be executed in front of his enemies and not offer any defense. You know, say, I'm di- basically, I'm dying for your sins. But he's petrified because professors have never made lasting mythologies. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, because it's so, you know, he's, it's like, I, am I too intellectual? Is this, is this too smart? <laughs> um, so uh, and and to me that's kind of a you know a Tolkieny thing. It's like the you know mythologies are to me are so much better uh, if I can if I can be so bold to give a graphic. Well, I won't give the when they're when they're typed from your genitalia and not your brain. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yes, it does. Uh, you know, it's like they got to come out of your gut to be like really you know uh, fun. Um, or your heart. Or your heart, yes, that too. It's got to, you know, it's, it, 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 has to, it has to come from all of the chakra. Yeah, yeah. Um, ba- a balanced set. And some, some professorial things or some analytical things, to, like, and this comes from me doing a lot of Shakespeare. Uh, I played the merchant in The Merchant of Venice. And, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to, st- you know, I'm trying to study, this is in college, so I'm trying to study all of the scholars writing about this character and blah, blah, blah. And they all talked about how what a, you know, Christian-like and what a blah, 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 and how nice he was. And it's like, did they not read Shylock? Shylock says he spit on him. He cusses his name. He treats him like crap. It's like, this guy's a douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> and I know this because I'm on stage playing him. You know? <laughs> Not because I've studied him. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I, I have to listen to what Shylock says about me or him. You know? uh, and so I always find that an interesting dynamic between, between anal- the analytics of storytelling and actual storytellers. They should make them get on the stage and play the character before they can even talk about them. All the best, all the best writers are former actors. Many are. Yeah, well, on I Xena, think... every single every single writer was an actor. Oh, not every single, not all, not all of them. One was an uh, an ex attorney, but he had to have a writing partner. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I've often of said the, of Harlan Ellison that if you know if if the writing hadn't worked out for him, he really could have been a good voiceover actor. Oh and yeah, he's yeah. you know and any of his books that that he's read. Yeah, and they're still kicking around. Uh, are brilliant. Yeah, brilliant he was great. Speak. I did. I got to see him speak a couple of times. And, uh, yeah. Uh, he actually motivated me one time listening to him speak, and I think Raleigh. Uh, they had just come up with they called it the Scopes Two Trial. Oh boy! Some textbook that kicked out of Tennessee because a uh, school in Tennessee because uh, they didn't like Anne Frank's Buddhist tendencies. What? Oh. <laughs> yes, you know, wow, that's a reach. That's a reach. <laughs> um, and I had just gotten out of college, and and I decided to go to East Tennessee to protest the fundamentalist Christians uh, 
uh, getting this book kicked out. It was a textbook, and it just had excerpts from from Anne Frank. Uh, and one of the things that she tells Pete, you know, Peter, the guy that's in the uh, the mm-hmm. annex with her, um, is wandering and lost, and 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 is kind of going through puberty, you know, and, and being a a problem child. And she she's trying to kind of give him religion. It's like, and she's saying it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe in something oh you know, there that's, are many roads yeah. to heaven no oh, they couldn't couldn't leave one. that alone could they <laughs> no 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 it must be jesus <laughs> oh, yeah because the jewish family was going to just embrace that <laughs> what <laughs> yeah exactly they weren't sending buddhists to the showers pretty <laughs> sure they you would have if they could have <laughs> exactly. Well, I, you know, they would. They may not have been sending Buddhists to the showers, but if they rounded up some Buddhists in Poland and the uh, Polish Buddhists, they would have offed them as well. Yes, Bujus, um, as my father would say. Bujus. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, um, what I learned from that was that the fundamentalists don't care uh, what they're protesting. They want the public schools closed. That's that was their agenda, um, and so. You know they're perfectly happy when when crazy liberals attack Santa Claus, or what have you. That's fine with them. They just want the pub. Uh, Jerry Falwell said, "I hope I live to see the day that all the public schools are closed and the churches will be running them." Ugh. Luckily, yeah. he didn't. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have been speaking with Robert S. Millet, the author of Kaya and the Morian Treasure. Uh, it is where where can listeners buy this uh of course amazon but you know why have jeff bezos send them another somebody else into space um <laughs> i would you know if you if you want the paper version of the book go down to your local bookstore and say hi and tell them you want this and order it and you know you can order it on Amazon and then deliver it to your house you can order it at your local bookstore that you know that can use their cut of the money more than Jeff Bezos and uh, and you get another reason to leave the house and take your mask off and and, and go have fun so get it wherever books are sold the uh, audiobook will be uh, Amazon and iTunes um, it's going through some technical cleanup now uh, and will be available shortly. And uh, we would like to do something uh, that we rarely do. In fact, I don't think we've ever done it. Uh, would it be all right if we played the first chapter uh, as part of this episode immediately following? That's a great idea. I love it. Play all chapter right. one. I Let's do you it. can play the first nine chapters if you want, but that's three hours. Of- that's three hours. <laughs> yeah. Let's give you the taster of the first chapter. That'll that'll at least send them over to uh, Apple Podcasts to pick it up. Yeah, you can get the first nine chapters, which have a nice ending. You know, and everybody who's read any kind of action adventure will know that ain't the end. Right. Somebody gonna die. <laughs> Uh, but you can get it wherever podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Robert S. Millet, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is R.S. Millet. You're listening to Chapter 1 of Kaya and the Morian Treasure on sci-fi.radio. Sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. 
Kaya and the Morian Treasure, a novel by R.S. Millett, read by Merritt Hicks, with R.S. Millett as Janaya. If you're listening to this and I'm not dead, then get out of my stuff. If you're listening and I am dead, then you should know the population of five different planets say I'll be resurrected and I'm coming back to kick your ass. If you're Kaya, then forgive me. I know you'd be pissed if I talked about you in real life, so I'm telling my journal. So much has been written about us, but not by anyone who knows what they're talking about. Few of them were there, but none of them know you like I do. You've made such a difference in my life, Kaya, that I just have to tell your story, even if it's just a recording. If anyone ever does hear this, I'll pretend to be mad, I'll stomp around and yell, but secretly, I'll be glad that someone else sees you the way I do. You aren't the person history paints you to be, Kaya. Maybe I'm the only one who knows the real you. But now, whoever hears this will know you too. Chapter 1. Victilis When I first met Kaya, I wasn't the galactic adventuress that I am today. I was simply Nadir Alidus daughter of the famous Sir Janus Alidus. Don't get me wrong, he was my dad, and I loved him and mom very much. But sometimes it was hard to live in his shadow, before I had a shadow of my own. I was kind of a geek back then. This wasn't my fault. I was in my first 15th percentage of life, and dad was a diplomat, so being his little girl was like being royalty geek. I was going to state dinners as soon as I was old enough to use my own knife and fork. I talked like a midlife college professor. I was raised to be prim, proper, and protocolish. The me back then would bore the me today to death. But what did I know? I was the only kid from Kasiri. That's my native planet, living on Victalis, the world where I grew up. So I spent most of my time with mom and dad. Then, when mom died... I don't want to talk about that. She died of a space plague, which is to say, any one of the viruses, bacteria, or whatever, from one of the planets she and Dad visited. It took her a long time to die. It wasn't pretty. And it still makes me sad to think about. So that's all I'm saying about that. Though, Mom's funeral was kind of a funny scene when I think about it now. You have to picture all of these formal Victalia sites at an event they knew nothing about. They must be the most uptight beings in the universe. They conform to the evolution of sentient life theory, you know, at least two eyes, two ears, and big brains like the rest of us. But beyond that, Victalocytes show little sign of actual life, and this follows them in death. In life, they wear clothes that wrap them so tight they can barely breathe and cover them from chin to toe. They must have bladders big enough to hold an ocean, because, <laughs> well, let's just say there are a lot of buttons. In death, they are just as bad. The bodies are cremated in some factory, while the friends and family sit around the house drinking tea and not talking to each other or showing any emotion. On Kasiri, we bury our dead. Mom often talked about visiting her parents' graves on the coast. They died when she was about as old as I am now, so they never got to see her graduate from school, meet dad, get married, have me, or any of the other important stuff in life. Mom said it helped her to go there and talk with them. It helped her work things out. 
She made Dad promise that I'd have a place to visit her, so he arranged for her burial in our favorite place on Victalus, a meadow under a big shade tree outside of town. Anyway, the locals did the best they could with a very formal funeral for my very informal mom, because Dad was famous. Visitors from all over the galaxy came to the ceremony. I didn't know any of them except my friend Kuan. His family were refugees from Admiral Gon's invasion of their home planet, Grasa. None of them talked much about it, but Gon was famous for doing horrible things to the worlds he captured. It must have been true, because I could see a deep kind of sadness in Kuan's eyes. Anyway, they were tightly wrapped Victalia sites, and formal visitors from distant planets gathered for Mom's funeral, when from over a distant hill walked the wildest, badass I had ever seen. If I'd not spent another minute with her, just the sight of Kaya's confident strut would have changed my life forever. She was underdressed and overarmed for the occasion, wearing thigh-high leather boots, one of which held her switchblade, and a black pressure suit made of nano-leather that looked like a corset of straps in strategic places. It was a pressure suit. Of course, I didn't know that when Kaya walked over the hill. I just thought she was there to kill someone. Most space jocks wore their pressure suits under their regular clothes as underwear, but not Kaya. Often, that was all she wore. Well, that and her pistol slung low on her thigh, some funky jewelry that always included a matching set of ear cuffs, and sunglasses with an orange tint to them. She had a mane of shaggy golden brown hair that seemed to lighten or darken with every move she made. It was long and full but never got in her way. All of this adorned a body that I wish I had. Boys must have loved her, though her attitude reeked of, you touch, you die. I got the feeling she could back that up with action. Apparently, Kaya didn't come for the funeral. She waited a polite distance away while a priestess finished her speech about the sacred flow of time. Now, if you have an offering or would like to say some private words with the deceased, please step forward. The priestess gestured for us to line up. Dad was first, so he put his offering into Mom's grave and waited for me to do the same. I put in mine, a letter I had written for her, and a bracelet I'd made her when I was in my first fifth percentage of life. I told her that I would love her forever. It was hard. She looked so lonely in there by herself. Dad placed his hand on my shoulder. You okay? I wasn't, but I nodded yes anyway, wiped my eyes and put on my best brave face. Good, I need to speak with someone, but I'll be right back. He went to talk to Kaya, leading me to play sad hostess to a bunch of people I barely knew. But I would have none of that. I made a show of a deep sigh, wandered off like I needed to be alone, and sat on a little rocky outcrop a perfect place to listen in on Dad's conversation. Sir Janus Alidus, I presume. You're Kaya. What can I do for you? You've heard of me? Are you the mouthpiece who's trying to unite the planets and get a peace treaty with the pirate systems? I'm afraid so. Then I've heard of you. She was so cool. I imagine I'm not so popular among your friends. Dad was a master of understatement. I haven't got any friends. But there is a price on your head. She paused for a second to see his reaction. During that little pause, I tried to figure out exactly what color her hair was. 
Each individual strand seemed to have its own shade, from blonde to light red, dark red, brown, and black. The combination made it look tan from a distance, but it would change in the light, or how it blew in the wind, or maybe her mood. I wasn't sure, but I was jealous. My mousy brown hair could never compete with hers. While I mused briefly about her hair, Dad glanced around at his security team. I think the mention of the pirate reward for his capture spooked him a little. Don't worry, I'm no bounty hunter. I'm just a lady with a fast ship trying to make a living. And I got word you might have some work for me. We're not exactly sure, but Kaya figures it was during this conversation that Dad was marked by a sniper. As Kaya said, there was a price on his head among the pirate planets. He was trying to make peace. Pirates don't like peace, as a general rule. They wanted him dead. But not just dead, captured and tortured, humiliated and executed. Deader than dead. I guess with all the visitors coming for Mom's funeral, someone slipped through security and managed to put a mark on Dad, which are entangled molecules that can be traced from anywhere in the galaxy. Don't ask me how it works. Don't know. Don't care. Anyway, he said to Kaya, I want to hire you to take me and my daughter Nadir to my parents' home on Kaziri. Once I know she's settled, I want you to take me to the Council of Pirates. You can collect that bounty. I said I'm no bounty hunter. You'll be doing me a favor. Kaya looked at him like he'd lost his mind. But then he let out a cough that sounded as fatal as his plan. Clearly his space plague would kill him soon enough. So what difference would an execution make? There's a war coming, Dad said after he'd caught his breath. If I can't stop it, maybe I can influence the aftermath. How so? You ever heard of the Morian treasure? Just rumors and lies. The warlord, Admiral Gon, claims to be close to finding it. If he does, he'll have enough money and power to organize his own galactic war. He won't find it. The Morian treasure doesn't exist. I know, Dad said, which made Kaya take notice. Gon uses the myth of the treasure to sustain his power with the Council of Pirates. <laughs> you mean, join me and you'll get your share of the treasure. Exactly. He'll raise a big enough armada whether he finds the treasure or not. So, how do you fight a myth? You create another one. Dad looked over at me. He knew I was listening, but they weren't talking about anything we hadn't already discussed. I've dedicated my life to peace. It's time I dedicated my death as well. Your death? I'm hoping for a very public execution. I broke Dad's gaze to look over at Mom's grave. This was, without a doubt, the most awful day of my life. And it was about to get worse. Are you ready? Dad waited until all the funeral guests had left to execute our plan. If I had packed for our trip before that moment, word would have certainly gotten out about our escape. So I had to work in a hurry. I crammed everything I could into two big trunks, mostly clothes, some personal stuff. Still, I think I left my entire childhood behind that night. We had to sneak past our bodyguards, out of the house, and drive down to the space dock to meet Kaya. The closer the time came to leave, the more nervous I got. When Dad came to me just after sundown, I thought I'd jump out of my skin. But then, evading our bodyguards wasn't as hard as I thought. 
Most nights, Dad would step out for some air and have a little chat with whomever was on guard duty. On this night, no suspicions were aroused when he talked a little longer than usual. While he did, I lowered our trunks out of my bedroom window in the back. They were heavy, and I had to keep from making any noise as I wrapped a rope through the top handle like a pulley, slowly eased one to the ground, then pulled the rope up again for the next. That done, I jumped out of the window and hauled the luggage to an old junker of a transport Dad had bought and parked a couple of streets over. The trunks took three trips. On my way back for the last piece, I saw him climbing out of the same window. He had a towel with him to muffle his coughs. That seemed too easy, I told him when we got in the car. <clears throat> not really. The guards are meant to keep people out of the house, not us inside. They would not be happy when we turned up missing. It was a long drive, and I wasn't happy. Dad had explained his plan to me over the past several weeks, but I was never sure how I felt about the whole thing until that moment. After I sat stewing for a few minutes, Dad finally spoke up. You okay? I got right to the point. I don't know why Grams and Granda have to take care of me. I'm old enough to be on my own. Dad didn't answer. Instead, he pulled the car to the side of the road and stopped. I looked around the dark night in panic. Dad, what are you doing? We have to keep going. They'll find us. No, this is important. He was calm, not angry or in a hurry. He took a moment before he spoke. You're right. You are almost old enough to take care of yourself. You're certainly mature enough. Thanks for noticing. I don't know why I said that. It sounded mean. I guess I was just upset. I'm not going to be around much longer. You know that. We've talked about it enough. What we haven't talked about so much is that you're going to have to start making your own decisions. So this might as well be one of them. Do you want to stay here? Kwan's parents said they would be happy to have you. Sometimes it completely sucked to have your dad be a brilliant diplomat. I looked down at the heavy fabric of my dress. I don't know. Kwan was the closest thing I had to a friend on Victalus. His parents worked with Dad. He waited for a little bit, but then said, You were right about them coming to look for us as soon as they know we're missing. So this big decision has to come in the next few minutes. Would you like some help making up your mind? I guess. Why did he have to be so nice and understanding? I wanted to yell at him and lose my temper so I could storm out of the car and have the decision made for me. Here's what your mother thought. We're the only people from Kaziri on this planet. You've grown up with an understanding of so many different cultures, which is great, but you don't know much about your own. She wanted you to speak your native language with someone other than us. She also hoped you would share your multicultural experiences with the people on Kasiri. Why is that? Honestly, our planet isn't the most understanding place in the galaxy. Worse than here? This is a close second. That's what Mom thought. I almost didn't want to ask this question. What do you think? I think you're right. You do? You think I should stay here? I didn't say that. <coughs> I don't think you need Grams and Granda to take care of you. I'm hoping that, in a few years, you'll be there to take care of them. They need someone to love and look after them now that their children are... 
gone? Yeah. <laughs> but I want it to be your decision. Going to Kasiri, living with them for a while. Then you can go off to whatever university you like. My name will pretty much get you into wherever you want to go. Then, some years from now, if they need you, well, like I said, your decision. I sighed and put my head on the back of the seat. Oh, crap, Dad. Just drive. It was late at night when we got to the space dock, which, generally speaking, is not a place cultured young women should frequent. Sure, the luxury liners are fine, all pretty and clean and dripping money, but we were at a freight port. The smell alone nearly killed me. Not much was going on, but from the wear and tear, I got the feeling that during the day, this place was busy. Kaya's ship was the only one loading that night. Big bales of cotton. She was yelling at the ground crew. No, no, you've got to balance the load around the gravity rod. Loads shift toward the center. Plan on it. She was chewing out these hardened dock workers like they were little kids. That made me wonder what she'd do with me. She finally saw us standing by the gangplank, dressed formally and obviously father and daughter. We must have stuck out like snow in the desert in that Victalis backwater. Kaya marched off her ship right up to me. Got enough stuff? Uh... She was taller up close, and all that time she'd spent loading her ship had pumped up her muscles and covered her in a layer of sweat. But her look didn't stammer me as much as her attitude. I had been raised in a diplomatic society where every word was measured, every gesture thought out and analyzed. Kaya wasn't like that at all. She spoke her mind without hesitation. Dad had taught me that fear is just anticipation of the unknown, and often a waste of time. When you think you're going to drown in fear, he'd told me, grab onto facts and the truth like a life preserver. They'll get you through. Ma'am, I've already parted with so much. This is all I have left in the world. It was the truth. Dad was right. It's a powerful ally. Kaya backed off a bit, but nodded toward the dock workers. I'm paying these guys to load cotton, not luggage. I can carry my own weight, and to prove it, I hoisted up my heaviest trunk. You'll have to stow it all in your quarters. Of course, was all I could manage to say, with a trunk on my back. And don't call me ma'am. I'm not that much older than you are. Yes, ma'am. I thought my legs would break under the strain as I made my way toward the gangplank. Still, when I realized what I'd said, I stopped, then looked back. Sorry. Kaya just waved me forward. Between huffs and puffs, I overheard Dad make excuses for my attitude. You know, upset about Mom and stuff. Kaya said, don't apologize. She's going to have to carry her own weight from now on. I think she knows that. Kaya took the suitcase Dad was carrying. He looked too weak to manage it. As they followed behind me talking about the price of cotton on the ice planet of Clonair, I smiled a little to myself. Kaya didn't rip my head off, and she was helping Dad, who obviously had plague. Maybe she wasn't so scary after all. Maybe. A spaceship on a planet, or down the well, as they call it, is like a sea creature sitting on land. The things just aren't made to fly in an atmosphere. On the rare occasions when they do land on a planet, 
they generally fall like a meteor and either splash down in an ocean, if they're lucky, or manage a controlled catastrophe near a spaceport. Then the captain has to hope the local crews can mount booster rockets to get the thing back out of the gravity well, which can cost a small fortune. Needless to say, most captains prefer to dock in orbit and take a shuttle down the well. Victalis didn't have an orbiting dock, so Kaya's ship stood rigged for takeoff when I first saw it. Giant booster rockets hugged the craft, obscuring much of my view. The rockets had Victalis labels on them, with little merchant translations printed underneath. Typical. The whole galaxy speaks merchant, but Victalis treats it like an afterthought. As monstrous as the boosters were, the vessel encased in them wasn't as big as I expected. What did I know? I was so young when Dad moved us from Kaziri to Victalis. This was practically my first flight. Besides the obvious concerns of exploding rockets, the endless void, burning up on re-entry and things like that, space travel came with other dangers. There was no law in space. The difference between right and wrong was up to each individual's opinion and their ability to defend it. That's what Dad's mission for the Coalition of Merchant Planets was all about, making space a safe place for everyone. Coming aboard Kaya's ship made it clear how far he had to go. With each step I took on the gangway, I moved further from the rigid, law-abiding world of Victalis and closer to the wilderness of space. Between the booster rockets and the ship proper, I saw an armor-plated porthole with a laser cannon jutting through it. The burn marks around the barrel told me that the hardware wasn't just for show. I stopped at the top of the gangway. The blast shields were up, encasing the ship in a dark metal cocoon that made it seem like a dungeon, with Kaya as the keeper. She squeezed around me and led us on board. We stepped onto the main deck, where large masts sprang from below. At the moment, they didn't go any higher than the dome of the blast shields. Their rigging sat folded up, like a bird of prey that had tucked its wings for a nap, or, in our case, takeoff. Above the floor level and toward the back was a command deck. From all the equipment, well-worn captain's chair, knickknacks, little kitchenette, as well as its general lived-in look, I figured that's where Kaya spent most of her time. Under the bridge lay the entrance to the crew's quarters. Judging by the dark grunge of age, this door might have led to the home of a troll or some other ghastly creature. Suddenly, it dawned on me that we were going to have to travel with Kaya's crew. She was scary enough as captain. What beasts did she have to do her dirty work? This way, following her through the door and down the steps, I discovered an emptiness almost as scary. Where's your crew? Don't have one. Most of the quarters have been converted to cargo space. She indicated a room across from the stairs that completed the image of a dungeon. It was more prison cell than room. You can stow your gear in there. We won't be aboard that long. But there's a cot if you get tired. I would never be tired enough to sleep on that pile of rags. To Dad, she said, your quarters are on the port side. Come on, I'll show you. And she led him down the hall. No sooner had I lugged my first trunk inside than Kaya popped her head in. Get the rest of your luggage. Strap it down and come up to the command deck. We're taking off as soon as the cargo is aboard. I managed to wrestle my other trunk into the room and strap both in place as best I could before going up to join the others. 
Kaya had rigged two seats next to her captain's chair, but they looked pretty temporary. I got the feeling she didn't like to travel with company. Dad had already buckled himself into the chair on Kaya's right, so I took the other one. As soon as I sat down, Kaya lashed me in place with impressive strength and complete purpose. There was no apology in her handling of me, none of the may I or if you please that I had been raised with. She wasn't rude, she just had a job to do, and she did it. Can you breathe? was all she asked. Barely. Good. Kai would often say that the only way to get out of a gravity well is for something to blow up. You just have to hope it's not you. Those words wouldn't have comforted me then, but I could have used some kind of warning of what was about to happen. I mean, I knew what rockets were, and that we were about to blast off but I figured Kaya would have to sit down first, right? I wouldn't have to worry until then, right? Wrong. Instead of taking her seat, Kaya stood on a disc. The disc wasn't a big deal, more like a decoration on the floor, worn out with age. It was just a little wider than her shoulders, so with her feet on its edges, Kaya looked like a general surveying her troops. She put on her wicked cool orange sunglasses. Looking over her shoulder... I could see masses of swirling psychedelic colors on the inside. Ship! I nearly jumped out of my skin. In a single word, she left no doubt about who was in charge of this operation. System status. All systems are go for takeoff. The voice of the ship was terse, but calm, and sounded like a guy. Though I could be wrong about that. Hard to tell. Sneaking a peek behind Kaya's glasses, I could see tiny text scrolling in the left lens, which Kaya ignored. Flight path status? No immediate atmospheric craft. Fifty ships in orbit, alerted to our trajectory. 273 low-orbit satellites, all outside our window. Kaya ignored more text and flight path graphics that I could see flickering over the other images on the inside of her glasses. I noticed that on the command desk, which once upon a time must have occupied three or four crew members, each monitor seemed to show one of the elements that added to the composite view in Kaya's glasses. Dockmaster, Kaya, good to go, standing by. Another voice filled the ship, this one with a Victalis accent. Copy that, Kaya. Dock is ready. You are clear to blow. Kaya put her hands down by her side and spread her fingers wide. Up from the floor sprang two little banisters just big enough for her to hold on to. They snapped into her hands. Ship. On my call, burn these rental rockets. Roger, standing by to fire external booster rockets set for ambient pressure of 1.5 atmosphere standard. On your mark. Will these things auto-adjust to zero pressure? Affirmative. That's good, because I could only afford one stage anyway. I had no idea what she and the ship were talking about, but it sounded like she knew what she was doing. Kaya then got quiet. She cracked the knuckles of her strong hands rolled her neck around a couple of times, and crouched where she stood, like a runner making ready. She adjusted her grip on the handles and shouted, Burn! You cannot imagine the sound, because it was more than just a sound. It was power, pure, unadulterated, dangerous, explosive power in the form of sound that filled every cell of my body. I screamed like a kid, and no one comforted me. I screamed like a woman, and no one cared. I had never felt anything like that in my life. I was scared and excited, and at the same time, one complex feeling of joy and agony seemed to erupt from my bones. And we hadn't even moved yet. 
I shot a quick glance at Dad. He was holding on tight and trying to be strong, but I could tell he was bracing for more. Straight in front of me, Kaya still crouched like a tiger, holding onto her handles, and I swear I heard her yell, Yeah, baby! She pulled a trigger on each handle, releasing the mooring jaws that held the ship to the dock. And suddenly, I couldn't breathe as we raced away from the planet. Everything I had known was rushing behind me, gone forever. I screamed even louder, glad for the noise of the rockets. I screamed for the loss of my mother. I screamed because I knew my father was sick and dying. I screamed because I was as scared of the rockets as I was of the unknown they were blasting me into. I screamed, and it felt good. Oops. The engines fell silent, leaving me screaming like an idiot. Embarrassing. I bounced back and forth between the tiny bit of breathing slack in the seatbelts and the seat itself, making me glad Kaya had strapped me in so tight. We were in space and not accelerating. Weightless. But that wouldn't last. Kaya was busy. Ship, jettison the rentals, hoist the main mast, and incoming target bearing 39 by 50, closing fast. Booster rockets jettisoned, hoisting main mast, aye. We were barely out of the Victalis atmosphere, and were already under attack. They didn't take long to find us. Hang on. It took me a second to realize Kaya was talking to us. And then she wasn't. Ship. Burn internal boosters and rig for fast sailing. Burning. Aye. Another roar of rockets deafened me, and I once again had weight. Kaya's pressure suit had become rigid along the back of her bent legs, so that she was actually sitting on it when we pulled G-forces. On the main deck, the masts had come to life. Rising out of the bowels of the ship, they hit the blast shields and pushed through the metal. One of the command monitors showed four external views from observation cameras, there, I could see the masts unfurl their mighty wings. The ship's alarms cracked me out of my fascination with the workings of the vessel. Incoming missiles! The monitors were going crazy with red flashing lights. Kaya turned to Dad with a casual rapport. This might get a little bumpy. She then started surfing on the disc, which was floating on the floor. She leaned to the left, raised her right arm. The monitors showed the wings shift accordingly, and the ship turned to the left. Kaya flicked her wrist, and two canisters erupted from one of those portals I had seen when I came aboard. Decoys away, proclaimed the ship. Kaya leaned back, and we shot straight up. At least, I think it was up. Hard to tell in space. A second later, the incoming missiles blasted the decoys to smithereens. <laughs> A little bumpy. Those explosions shook the soul out of me. And they missed. Dad was surprisingly calm. They're not wasting any time. Kaya was calm, too, which was not surprising. Relax, he's not a real threat. Just then, more explosions rocked the ship. That cannon fire seems real enough. How did Dad know about cannon fire? Kaya looked up, and I guess the glasses looked with her, because she said, that's Derek's ship. Like she could see it. He's an old... friend. As if to say, ha! Derek's cannons exploded against the ship. Kaya shouted like he could hear her. You still shoot too quick, Derek! Then she turned to us. I know all his moves. And again, we were blasted. This time, harder and longer, making Kaya mad. Hang on, we're going to tick. Now, Dad was scared. We haven't been sedated. Without missing a beat, Kaya swung around and kicked Dad in the nose. Now you have. Blood splattered all over Dad's face. He was out, cold. Holy! It's a good thing Dad was unconscious 
because I said something he wouldn't have liked. Kaya looked at me with wild eyes. You want to be sedated too? Uh, no ma'am. He'll be fine. Don't worry. Derek's ship did something that made Kaya steer hard to the left. Another explosion. Another near miss. But I was worried about something else. They say you'll go crazy if you tick without sedating. Kaya cocked her leg up like she was going to kick me too. I never sedate. Do I look crazy to you? Well, yeah. It was true. Her eyes were wide with excitement, and her hair had changed color. Instead of the multicolor brown, it was now a glossy black. Under this new look, she smirked, closest thing to a smile I'd seen from her. I like you, kid. Instead of kicking me, she pressed a button on the console in front of her, and we ticked. Imagine living your entire life in less than an instant, yet experiencing every moment of every day of every year. Then, imagine that you don't like how it turns out, so you go back to where you think you went wrong and live your life all over again, still in less than a second. Don't like the way that one turns out either? Do it again, and again, and again, and again. Eventually, lifetime after lifetime pile up on each other. You experience every bit of them, from birth to death, but all in less time than it takes to blink. Then just as fast as it started, it stops. That's a small fraction of what it's like to be awake during a tick. Not that it really stopped for me. It actually got worse. The tick was over, but I was still tickled, as they call it. When we popped back into time, the lives began to last a little longer, and it hurt. When someone hit me, I felt it physically. When a loved one died, I felt it emotionally. And millions upon millions of such painful possibilities flooded me all at once. I found myself screaming again. Through this haze, I heard one voice shouting at me. That's the pain. It was Kaya's voice. Feel it. Let it happen. You can't run from it. All the emotional pain you're ever going to feel in your life, here it is, all at once. Her words weren't exactly helping. But then again, I was just barely aware that she was real and not just another one of the temporary lives flashing before my soul. Every broken heart you'll ever have, every death, every loss, every betrayal, it all happens. She wasn't lying. I felt all of that, and it hurt me to the core. I gave birth and raised a family a thousand million times. A few of my children died before me. That hurt the most. Sometimes I died alone, which wasn't a lot of fun either. Let it happen. Kaya's tone was quick and to the point, like a doctor performing emergency surgery at the scene of an accident, only she was working on the victim's emotions. Somewhere in my head, I became aware of Dad struggling to get out of his chair. What have you done? She's just a little tickled. She'll be fine. Tickled? You mean insane? Oh, by all that is holy! I still didn't have a clue which of the lives I was a part of was the one I should be living. Kaya was everywhere, and several of her copies were talking to me. Everything happens, Nadir, one would say. The good and the bad, said another. You feel the pain first, okay? I was losing counts of them all. It's sharp, and it's overpowering. Breathe, Nadir. Remember to breathe. This one was good, because suddenly I realized I needed to take in some air. And I did. Dad stepped in front of me. Come back to me, baby. Come back. Kaya stopped him. Not yet. What? Four or five Kayas spoke to me. Stay in it. Don't deny it. Don't fight it. My multiple dads were upset. No, that's wrong. All of the manuals say, well, they're all wrong. She'd snapped so hard at my dads, and with such conviction that most of them shut up. The Kayas turned back to me. You can't run away from it, baby. 
Your life is a big, beautiful, painful mess. It hurts sometimes, right? But not always, right? I noticed that I was still screaming in fear and pain. Had been the whole time. The emotional and physical pain of life was so overwhelming that I didn't want to live. I couldn't understand why anyone would choose to live if they knew what I knew at that moment. Life was pain. If I had come out of the tick right then, I think I would have done anything I could to end my own life. But Kaya's words worked their way into my brain. Let the pain fall away. Feel the joy. Feel the happiness that's ahead of you. That's what stays with you. Slowly, I began to see that for every dark moment of pain, there was a brighter, longer time of enjoyment, usually before it, sometimes after. Light, shadow, then light again. The Kayas continued. Everything happens, the good and the bad. You feel the bad first and most, but it doesn't last. Don't linger on it. Find the joy. As she said that, the brighter moments blocked out the painful ones. I began to feel warm and comfortable and loved. I must have smiled, because the Kayas relaxed. There's the joy. It's nice, isn't it? It was. Kaya's voice was soothing, but still detached. Her job was to get us safely to Kasiri, and getting me out of my tickled state was part of that. Remember, every romance, every kiss, every birth, every time you loved someone and every time they loved you back. Embrace all of the life you're about to lead. The sense of joy was so overpowering, I'd do anything to get it back again. I can understand why people get addicted to being tickled. You can't imagine how good it feels once you're past that whole life-is-too-painful-to-live part. But just as I closed my eyes to live forever in imaginary bliss, Kaya coaxed me back. Sweetie, she said, like she was my best friend. I think she just couldn't remember my name. Come back to us now. While she brought me back, she must have grabbed Dad and put him in front of me because he was the first thing I saw. That's it. Your eyes are open. You can use them now. I did. And there was Dad, in the flesh. I'd just lived countless lives with him, felt the pain every time he died, and the great joy of every moment I was with him. Once I was with him for real, something inside me said that the actual joy was better than the artificial one I'd just felt in the tick. I gave him such a big hug that I think I squeezed all the air out of him. Oh, that was intense. Eh, a billion lifetimes in less than an instant. Some can't handle it. Call me crazy, but I think there was the slightest bit of respect in her voice. But her hair. Wait, I was in the wrong reality. Panic gripped my chest. No, this is wrong. What, honey? I could see Dad's anxiety as he had no idea how to help. I pointed to Kaya. You're blonde. The other Kaya, before, I'm in the wrong reality. Oh, <laughs> my hair? Yeah, it does that. You're in the right life. As she said this, it looked as if each strand twisted to hide the blonde look and returned to her usual collective golden brown. Wow, was all I could manage on that subject at the time. Kaya didn't seem to want to talk about that. How's your nose? She was talking to Dad, but I almost answered her. I think I'd had a thousand nose breaks in that tick. It's fine. For a diplomat, he was a lousy liar. I'll get some ice. Why don't you lay her down in her cabin? We'll hold out here for a while, make repairs, and rest up before we tick to Kaziri. Rest sounds like a good idea. As he took me to my room, I realized that it had only been a few minutes since we'd taken off, but for the first time in what seemed like days, it was quiet. 
I liked the quiet. It meant I wasn't screaming. But it wasn't quiet enough. The mark that had somehow been put on Dad at home was shouting to its master, telling the pirates exactly where we were. Turns out, that moment of calm was just a lull in the storm that was about to kick into full gear. You have just heard Chapter 1 of Key and the Morian Treasure by R.S. Millett. This has been Episode 239 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of the Event Horizon for April 23, 2022. Our guest this evening has been, of course, Robert S. Millett. This episode will air again at 4 p.m. Pacific 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon. And two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all the air times have passed, you will find this episode as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and our own website at sci-fi.radio. Sci-fi.radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio. And the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. If you enjoy programming like what you just heard, we ask you to please visit patreon.com slash Radio and pledge $5 or $10 a month to help keep the station on the air. That's patreon.com slash radio. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schermeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire, the navigator was Christine Cherry, and the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2022 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>